Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and Jim. In today's episode are Emmett and Amory from the My Wall Street analyst team. Before we get into today's show about Netflix's second quarter and the impending Hollywood strike, I just want to get in a quick word from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. Vodafone Business has always been a reliable provider for mobile and broadband needs, but now they are so much more. They now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. They're no longer a telecoms provider, they're a comprehensive technology partner. They're really stepping up to help businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember, Vodafone Business is there to support, guide and empower you every step of the way. Anne-Marie, Emmett, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Uh, excuse our voices if we're a bit low and <laughs> billowing this morning or recording very early for once. My favorite now. It be See, me. I'm a morning person, but I, I like I, I kind of evening isn't my time. And my wife would typically her brain ignites as the closer you get to midnight, the more she wants to talk about stuff. After 9 p.m., I'm kind of wrapping it up inside between my two ears. And it's, it makes for a very interesting dynamic. But yeah, I love the mornings. So, Anne-Marie, I'll cover for you. Don't worry, I got you. I got okay, you. Cool. Good, good, good. Just to make the early morning feel more impactful for you, Anne-Marie, I decided we're going to start this show with the pop quiz. Are you ready? Of course. Great. Yeah. So I just saw uh, Charlie Bilello, who's a good follow on Twitter, by the way. He put up the best performing stocks in the S&P 500 over the last 5, 10, 15 and 20 years. So, um, <laughs> Amory, give me a look. For the last 20 years, Amory, what was the best performing stock on the S&P 500? For the last 20 years, that's what we're going back to 2003. Um, you should uh, also, you should know this. I should know yeah. it. Yeah. We discussed this on a podcast ah, yeah. not too far ago. Um, is it Microsoft? Not even close. No. no. Not in the top 10. I don't know. Amos, do you look like you know it? Yeah, it's Monsters. Uh, Monster Celestial? Is it just Monster? Uh. Monster Beverage, yeah, yeah, yeah. Monster Beverages, yeah. I think they used to be called Hain Celestial. Is that right? And no, Monster. not... No, not those Haines are two different Celestial. companies. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Hain Celestial. Oh, it's the morning. I'm not a morning person. Hain <laughs> <laughs> Celestial is the organic food. Um, yes, it's Monster Beverage. They were yeah. called oh, they were called Hansen's Natural. Hansen's, Hansen's Natural Juices or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, they yeah. floated as. Yeah, <laughs> Monster. That is insane that anything involving Monster had the word natural in it. <laughs> that's, why they, that's why they pivoted. That's how they made all the money. <laughs> what a pivot. <laughs> all right, Emmett, I'm making this easier for you. The company, the highest performing company for the last 15 and last 10 years is the same company. Uh, is it Domino's Pizza? No, not even. Not even in the top 50. Well, Domino's is in the top eight. Um, it's the company everyone's been talking about all this year. Tesla. No, NVIDIA. In fairness, Tesla. Oh, NVIDIA, of course. All right. The way this is going, we're not covering ourselves in glory. So I don't think we're going to get the last one for the last five years. It's the solar energy stock. Oh, for solar. No. Enphase energy. All right. Enphase, yeah. We might cut out that whole. We might cut out that whole section. No, I think yeah. it made us look great. We were super well prepared. <laughs> I should it have shows shared. we're fallible. It shows we're human, Mike. Um, our listeners oh. pretty much regard us as superhuman, so I think it's fine. 
<laughs> okay. Right. Well, on that note, um, I think we have to get into Netflix. It's just why we're recording so early because we waited for the earnings report. So uh, they reported last night, Wednesday night. Um, but I think the biggest story here is probably the Hollywood strike. So we talked about this here a while back when the writers went on strike. But now the Actors Union has joined them as well. It's essentially putting Hollywood at a complete standstill. So this has been dubbed the Netflix strike just because most of the complaints are falling at the feet of the streaming industry. Uh, so they're clearly a big prominent studio in this space and a lot of the blame we'll say because it's the most prominent streamers kind of falling at their feet but let's discuss the earnings report first emma's talk us through the numbers from netflix second quarter yeah so netflix is led by two ceos co-ceos ted sarandos and greg peters and basically it reported some big numbers there last night earnings uh came in at three dollars 29 a share versus two dollars 86 expected so that was a very solid beat but revenue um cash into the till came in at a paltry 8.19 billion dollars versus 8.3 expected so like that was a disappointment but the number i think that everybody was waiting for was new customers so thanks in large part to shooting the dog called password sharing they added 5.9 million new paid subscribers to way exceed uh, Wall Street's expectations. So let me put that in perspective. It added the population of Ireland plus a million in 12 Mm. weeks. So here's how I went to, here's how I imagine that news went down in the Netflix boardroom. So just to set the scene, I told you who the co-CEOs are and as most of our listeners will know, the founder, Reed Hastings, is the chairman. Okay, so when something like this, I'm just going to riff here. Uh, good morning, Reed. Good morning, Ted. Ted, how many subscribers did we add in the last few weeks? Almost 6 million, sir. That's more than the population of Ireland. What, what's Ireland? Uh, it's, it's like a potato-shaped country in the Atlantic, sir. It's famous for, you know, Guinness, James Joyce, uh, whiskey, U2, amazing dairy produce, my Wall Street, great people. Uh, he said, then I reckon Reed said, I told you I wanted to add a China, not an Irlandia, <laughs> or whatever it's called. But sir, that's impossible. Uh, get out, Sarandis, you're fired and tell that spare CEO to get in here. Right, Peter, sit down. It's Peter's, sir. Oh, whatever. Tell me, how did Squid Game 2 go? How did it perform? Anyway, so look, I'll get back on track. <laughs> I'll keep going if you like. So anyway. Long way to come back on track from that. <laughs> right, okay. Netflix previously told investors that it expected $8.2 billion in revenue in Q1 and operating income of $1.6 billion. And it hit the revenue number but beat on income hitting $1.8 billion in operating income in Q2. But I thought there was a nice um, summary in the Hollywood Reporter, which is an online um, journal on all things Hollywood. And it said that Netflix's revenue growth and profit margins have become the envy of the industry with legacy competitors like Disney, Paramount, NBC Universal, Warner Brothers and Discovery all bleed in cash as they try to make their own streaming services 
profitable. All of them say they're targeting 2024 to make their offerings turn a profit. So it was a good quarter. It was good. The shares were slightly down after market, which didn't surprise me because there's always pent up energy on the run up to a quarterly announcement. And it takes a lot of good news in a single quarter for it not to dip after hours when there's been a run up. But I think the look tomorrow when this podcast goes live, we'll know. But I think the market will turn green today because really that's some serious addition. Like they added Ireland plus a bit in 12 weeks. So you can't argue with that. Yeah, I think all the moochers in Ireland are going to get added soon as well. I think it's going out to the public next week. Yeah. Um, Amory, you were interested to hear more from the effects of the password sharing clampdown. I think they were a bit yeah. tight-lipped on it, though. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I mean, they kind of offhandedly credit, as as as, as uh, Emmett just said, that there was a substantial amount of subscriber growth, 5.9 million coming through. And they, they were kind of like, oh, this was because of the clampdown on password sharing. But there was like no clear outline figure saying, you know, these are the number of accounts that we credit as spinning off from however many primary accounts. And I, I mean, maybe Netflix doesn't gather that data. I would assume that they do. They seem to be a company that keeps a lot of data on the inside though we're probably going to talk about that later um that got a lot of analysts quite happy like they seemed quite satisfied with the fact that you could draw an almost direct line between you know subscription growth and this effort um that being said in terms of like the long-term growth and performance of the company um i also think that like the market and like relevant experts are also saying, you know, this we very much view this as as a temporary effort to restore Netflix's growth. And how many quarters are we actually going to get out of this? Um, Paolo Pastori, who's an analyst at PPE Forecast, said that uh, the results were a strong endorsement of Netflix's strategy, but cautioned that a crackdown was simply a short term measure, and Netflix needs to consider a further pricing strategy for the mid to long term. I would actually push beyond that. Like, I'm not very interested in hearing Netflix discuss pricing strategy is I was almost view that as being quite routine, you know, very similar to how we discuss like Costco's pricing strategy. You know, if you're a subscription service and membership service, there is just an understanding that every three to five years, you're going to review what you charge people. And that should be quite normal. I think realistically, if we want Netflix to get back to maybe earning the reputation of being a growth stock, I want to see maybe the gaming start to move anywhere. I feel like it's now less about how much money can we make off of our central television and movie content and more like how do we make more money from our primary market within North America? And then how do we make money out of, you know, some remaining markets that we haven't yet come into, which is going to be, I'd say the big focus is, is going to be India. And we've heard that articulated already for management. Mm. Okay, so let's talk industrial action. This yeah. strike is affecting it's affecting every studio in the US. I just kind of wonder how Netflix comes across amongst it all. Yeah. So just to kind of fill in of what this has actually done overnight, effectively all productions that hadn't already halted due to the writer strike in the United States have stopped. Um, if you were a U.S. production and you were still working during the writer strike, that's a very much gray area frowned upon. A lot of I know the WGA was targeting um, studios that they knew were filming and were, were picketing specifically outside of them to prevent trucks from going in. So um, in terms of like what has actually happened, it's not as dramatic as when the writers went on strike but it is quite significant um that also just means in terms of like your long-term content pipeline as we know like movies are not made overnight they tend to be made at least a year in advance that really does mean that there is no new work being developed and there is nothing in process being completed which is going to have a massive knock-on effect we're talking at least a year-long delay here um 
more significantly, I would say this is going to have a big, big impact on stuff that's just about to hit the box office. And that's because under a pause of a SAG after a contract, it actually means that the actors are not allowed to do anything in terms of promotion of a film, you know, making any kind of premiere um, appearances. They cannot post on social media in relation to the films that are coming out. It's like it's complete radio silence. And um, that's a bit of a shame because we are having a bit of a good year. Currently, the 2023 domestic box office um, has brought in about $5 billion. That's a 13% increase from last year. And we had a pretty decent year last year. Um, the year last year ended up having about $7.4 billion. Everyone was hoping that that would be overtaken because uh, we do have some big releases coming down the line. But now we have this weird thing of like there can't be any dedicated advertisement coming from the talent. So we don't know what that's going to do. Um, currently on the docket for this year, we have Dune 2, The Marvels, and Haunted Mansion all expected to come out. Um, unfortunately, two of those three are coming from Disney, which is going to bear the brunt of this again. Um, so uh, there is a few exceptions in that some of the studios, I think, saw this coming, and they were like, we're going to get ahead of this in terms of advertising. We're going to prepare. So they like shot like fake interviews you know they like didn't bring in the media they like simulated it and they had the actors answer questions so that they would have the stock footage to then distribute when they're ready for these things to come out which is kind of crazy an example of that is apparently um studios have footage of denzel washington he he is a movie coming out this year equalizer three which is a typical kind of big budget in the movie theater type thing and they have like promotional footage of him that they preemptively shot several months ago that they're ready to just distribute so maybe that'll change up the model here um And also a big thing that we need to keep an eye on is effectively Comic-Con has not been canceled, but the way that it operates has practically been canceled because none of the actors will be making appearances there because, again, that's negotiated through SAG. Um, And as we know, like those big panel discussions with all the actors is a huge draw of Comic-Con. So that is not happening. And also SAG has put out a formal email to fans requesting if they're a cosplayer or they like to dress up as a character they have asked them not to um as as kind of a way of supporting the strike with their argument being hey when you dress up as a character that appears in a major motion picture you are representing this character but you are also representing the actor who portrays them and just as a sign of support maybe don't dress up and i have already seen online a pretty significant momentum of fans being like yep fair enough like i will go to comic-con but i i won't dress up and so that's just you know a bit of a ding for the culture of Comic-Con, really, but it is kind of nice to see um, regular people supporting. Um, in terms of, like, how the CEOs are coming across here, not well. They're not looking great, particularly Bob Iger of Disney. I'm going to talk about him a couple times during this segment, mm. but he was off at his, like, rich man ranch in uh, Idaho with a bunch of other CEOs, and he was asked about um, the impending strike at the time the actors had not yet called it, and he gave some very poor quotes to the news um in relation to when he was basically asked like here like do you think the sag expectations are reasonable he said there's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic and they and they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing and that is quite frankly very disruptive so he basically said guys everybody's struggling don't go on strike so uh yeah not, not, not well did you see the thing? Um, the financial needs, the financial needs of the strike would be satisfied if the top ten studio CEOs took a two percent pay cut. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But you know something like there he is. I like that. Firstly, I like the idea of a rich man ranch. I want one of those. They're probably yeah. have six <laughs> bathrooms. Six bathrooms. But you know, Comic Con this year sounds like I don't know, like the World Economic Forum. It's going to be like yeah. <laughs> pretty boring. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's, hold on a minute. Is Comic Con? Um, 
a a company because yeah like is it yeah is it a, is it a limited business so to speak yeah but they are tend to be unassociated with one another so like comic-con san diego which is the very famous one that all the actors go to that is a company and but then there's like other like we have a dublin comic-con but i do not th- i don't think the concept of comic-con is copyrighted so like they're not associated mm. with one another but the big one is a business yeah well, I went to, I went to, did I go to Comic-Con or something? When I was in college, I went to something in Dunleary, which is a suburb of Dublin. And it was in the Royal Marine Hotel there. And it was, um, oh yeah, it was a science fiction convention. I went with a friend of mine. And honestly, it like as a physicist, I fit right in. But that was about where it ended. Um, guys, can I tell you a re- even better story? Like better sure. than my, I went to the science fiction convention. <laughs> I I have I had my moment of meeting one of the strikers two weeks ago. I was out with my son walking our dog, and um, in our local green where dogs are allowed to run around, uh, I ended up standing beside another dog owner, and it was none other than Killian Murphy, star of no, no Oppenheimer. Way. Yeah, and he lives in my town, and I've seen him jog past, and he also signed the wall of my local Italian. And um, for whatever reason, like you go into Malco Italian restaurant and it's uh, great food. Thanks, Killian Murphy. They were obviously superstar struck. They were like, here, sign that. But anyway, um, the, uh, I had a good chat with him. It wasn't just a nice day. Yes, nice day. We had a proper conversation. But I immediately knew first my son immediately knew who he was because he's a, he's a big film buff. And second was I had to immediately go right to I do I play it cool and not mention his superstardom? Or do I go, um, oh my God, I'm a big fan here, sign my shirt. So I went with plan A, which was the Irish style, which is like, I don't give a damn who you are. But anyway, we we had a good, <laughs> we had a good chat. Uh, we spoke about the best do- uh, food for a dog's bowel motions. We spoke about, <laughs> we spoke about everything except the things that were hot on the agenda in the world right now, like the Screen Actors Guild strike, which I wanted to raise. But any, anyway, um, by just funny coincidence, I was subsequently contacted as a customer of a food company, a dog food company called Phoenix Bark, which is, I have to tell you, brilliant for dogs if you live in Ireland. And uh, they said, hey, do you want to invest in our business? Uh, we're doing a raise and and they just contacted all their customers. And I just said, oh, um, just check your database there. Is Killian Murphy a customer? And this is so anti-GDPR. I'm sure it's even worse now that I'm broadcasting it. But anyway, and they said, yeah, yeah, he's on it. Who's he? And I, I, I really wanted to say, that's that Killian Murphy. And I went, ah, oh, it's just a friend of mine. So now I have somebody out there who thinks Killian Murphy is a friend of mine. Isn't that a good story, guys? Don't cut that out. That's a great story. It's a great one. I think poor old Phoenix Bark will have the GDPR up there. Boom, now soon as well, but whatever. Ah, <laughs> oh, no, it's grand. Sure, it's grand. Okay. Um, back to the strike though what did Netflix have to say about it on the call I was reading um, I was reading articles saying that their international production capabilities kind of sheltered it somewhat compared to other studios yeah that does seem to be the thing I was actually quite um, interested though in because I just slandered Bob Iger I actually don't think it's slander if he said it himself and made himself look bad Um, but Ted Sarandos on the call actually took a pretty long moment to discuss the importance of unions um, and he went on to tell a very personal story about how he grew up in a union household and his father was an electrician which meant he was in a union 
And he talked about when his his father's union went on strike for a number of months and how difficult that was for the family, but also how important that was for the overall industry. Um, so that was kind of nice. Um, and he he did say that he he was committed to working with SAG and working with the WGA, and he was understanding of how that they needed a good deal and they needed protections. And so um, that was kind of nice to see. I think that is the approach that you probably want to take in terms of your 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 massive conglomerates um approach to negotiating with a quite significant union um but in terms of like the actual movement that netflix has made uh, in order to 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 come to any kind of agreement so far we have not seen any of the major studios who are all kind of grouped together in their own style of union it's like the producers union that protects them um we have not seen any of them kind of break from one another they're all still standing firm and as of right now that means that no one is negotiating that is apparently the tactic as of right now the studios are not taking meetings they're not speaking to anyone they're not talking to the WGA they're not talking to SAG at all um which is a pretty significant step to take because that basically means that you're saying hey we think that we will wait for you to run out of money and not be able to pay your mortgage that's the step that they're taking so we could be here for a while um but yeah as you said uh Netflix does have a huge advantage because they have a huge international pipeline of content that comes in and that has often been something that we cite in terms of of the strength of the streamer but also the strength of the stock itself because it does mean that it appeals to an international audience much Mm. easier because i'm sure like because because this strike is completely located in the u.s we have to yeah yeah yeah. so uh sag after only represents again with like the writers they only represent people from north america there are equivalent unions that exist across the world so if you're a british actor who primarily only works in the uk and you know you're only working for uk productions it means that your contracts are not negotiated by sag they're actually negotiated by uk equity um and uk equity is not a sister union if it was a sister union they would also be on strike however uk equity is taking a vote to determine and whether they will go on strike in solidarity. But as of right now, the UK union is satisfied with the terms that they have been able to negotiate with their local studios. So as of right now, production will continue in Europe and all kind of other locales. As, um, as we know, like Netflix tends to, aside from producing content domestically within other markets, they tend to buy a lot of international content that's already been made. So I expect that they, I'm sure, have a plethora of meetings set up in like Korea and Mexico, Spain, India. They've bought content from kind of all all over the world so i would expect it to continue and, and, and at least ensure probably for the next six to nine months that they have new content that's going out there um it's still though we need to wait and see because if if the british union strikes in solidarity we could see more international unions take that step and, and that would actually really be what what's going to hurt netflix um as well as that you could have some big name actors kind of step out of line as you said they're like Killian Murphy there he is a SAG uh, member he's representing an American film Oppenheimer was made by an American studio um, we actually were meant to have the Oppenheimer Irish premiere yesterday and he was meant to be there and he said he w- he would not be attending because his union was on strike and he was very apologetic for that um, you could have I don't know you could have Olivia Coleman turn around and say hey I'm, I'm, I won't be working in solidarity with SAG because she has the, the power to do that whereas you know smaller actors would just get fired so um that's kind of where we are i i do think netflix as you said at the top like this is being called the netflix strike because they're the ones that originated the streamer model but they're likely to be the least impacted i mean disney is we'll have squid game six by the time the strike is over (laughs) yeah like disney is going to bear the brunt of this like all the major big archaic studios are but Disney was really the one that broke from the herd early days in terms of the pandemic and said, hey, we we are going to continue to rely on big box office releases. Yes, we will have Disney Plus and we will make accompanying content 
that supports our big box office reasons but you know they have this expectation that any marvel film that they put out is going to generate a billion dollars and they're going to put out four to five of those a year there nothing's being produced right now so this is going to delay out their marvel schedule you know they undoubtedly are planned for the next four years and they're going we're going to have a massive gap from nine to 12 months and that's where we generate all of this content and because they built everything it's like all their content is relying upon one another you know they need this movie to come out in order for these two tv shows to come out and if they don't come out in that order it's not going to make sense because people won't like have seen this villain get introduced or whatever so they're everything for them is, is is being delayed and they shoot absolutely everything in the u.s in los angeles in the studios that they own so um yeah this this really the the first place that they're coming for right now is is those big old studios yeah okay well let's talk disney because there's a lot of well no we're talking about rumors some of it is rumors a lot of it oh, is yeah. true so basically bob bob Iger is putting up his network television stations for sale essentially yeah yeah. Um, and then there's rumors that ESPN might be on the chopping block and Apple is in yeah. for that. And yep. then there is unsubstantiated rumors <laughs> that the whole company might be up for sale. Yeah. We should buy it. Well, my Wall Street should buy Disney. I'd buy that totally. I'd buy that. Yeah. We just need to raise the financing. So uh, can you talk to it? <laughs> Can you talk to your buddy Killian about a $50 billion? Yeah, yeah I don't want to yeah. say too much. I already have. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So, uh, di- like, as we've already said, Disney is suffering. Th- and Bob Iger, he's really going in now. It's This is, this is we want profitability. We want we want cash on hand. Because um, Disney really is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right now they have the strike. And looming into the distance in 2024 is they are contractually obliged to buy out. I think it's a third of Hulu is owned by Comcast. Hmm. And Disney is contractually obliged to buy that by to the end of 2024. And it values Hulu at like twenty five billion or something nuts. A huge amount. Like this is pandemic level valuations of everybody yeah. and their mother is gonna have a Hulu subscription and we're all gonna be billionaires. And so Disney's stuck with this going, Okay, we need cash. We need cash right now for this. And they have been depleting their cash for the last about four years. So Bob Iger again at his rich man ranch, once again, he Love was it. there Love and it. he he basically said, Yeah, uh, we're having a sale. And he said that he no longer views traditional analog TV as being Disney core. Therefore, you know, ABC, Disney Channel, and ESPN are up for sale. Um, Amazing. Amazing. I'd love to see ESPN if it was just used as a kind of uh, buy an iPhone tactic for Apple. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, we're talking about the the guy who was once heralded as the king of acquisitions between... um, Lucasfilm, Pixar, uh, Marvel. Marvel. Like, I mean, this guy hoovered up all of the best media brands in his tenure, and now suddenly he's kind of gone to the other side of the table and is divesting some. It's quite interesting strategically. Well, I think retrospectively now, we might look back at that 70 billion Fox acquisition, Uh, maybe not so favorably. Yeah, I mean, I, I... I don't think they should have. I don't think Disney should have bought them, but I also actually don't think that probably should have been regulatorily approved. Like it can, it just created such a a massive mm. studio that now, like if Disney Disney's now, as I just said, is going to be sitting around for nine to twelve months. It also means that there's all these other studios that are under their umbrella who now do not get to negotiate independently of Disney, so they are now also paused. So you just kind of created this bloat within the industry that maybe was not necessary. Mm. So who could who could buy Disney? 
Apple is a, is like the one that keeps getting floated around. But those rumors <laughs> have been around for years where people are like, Apple Apple and Disney have this similarity, blah, blah, blah. Which I think like a lot of that comes foundationally from Steve Jobs, the Steve Jobs connection between him leaving Apple, founding Pixar, selling like Pixar getting sold to Disney, him coming back to Apple. I think yeah. that's where people are, are see that. It, it would be a huge transaction. It would be... Oh, stop. SEC, FTC, yeah, all no. over it, yeah. Yeah, it no. would never go through. I just can't see that happening. When you look at Microsoft trying to buy Activision, which arguably is, I don't know, a big cloud of studios all over the world. Well, Disney is, I presume, 10x what Activision is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Who would you like to see buy Disney? Who could buy Disney that would be like, that would work? Or a merger or a, you know, a merger of unequals or whatever? Mm, it's a tough one to call. Yeah, because the parks, you have to remember, like, Disney is not just the studio. It's not just the movies, not just the streamer. It's the parks. Like, yeah. and it's that's a different... something like, totally, sorry, didn't mean to cut you. It's something like, they own, like, 20% of Florida or some outrageous number. They own cruise liners. <laughs> they own, yeah. like, I mean, they own so much land. It's It has as much yeah. real estate on its books than you, you can imagine in, in a business. Like, it is just absolutely behemoth of a business with so many tentacles. I find a great uh, infographic um the size of the Dim- disney empire was done in the shape of the mickey mouse ears you know the one <laughs> and it shows i'm going to try and send it to you mike i'm going to try and root it out and we might put in the show notes because it is really beyond belief the size of the disney empire because we all have a view of what it means to us it might be a collection of movies or as you said i'm theme parks or or maybe the cruise liners but when you look beneath the surface it's mind-blowing it's funny because it would probably be worth more chopped up but it's all Mm. so intrinsically linked with this ip that you could never do it in that way yeah and that's the difficult thing about them essentially having a yard sale and selling we're selling off the analog tv channels who's gonna like comcast is gonna end up having to buy those because there's no new age streamer or media company that's going to be interested in analog tv because everyone knows it's in terminal decline you're really dependent upon ad sales we know money is is rotating out of tv and going into streaming it's just you don't want to be selling i know i understand that that's logical of like you sell your weakest asset but if they need cash i think they should be looking to sell fox they should negotiate because part of the reason they that fox was originally attractive to them is because they were trying to reunite the marvel rights that fox had i think they should write up some contract get whatever rights out of fox that they want and they should be spinning off the fox studios and getting somebody else to buy them but isn't The Simpsons the most watched show on Disney Plus? Am I right in saying that? I don't know. Yeah, I think it is. Just... That goes more to how everything is so intrinsically linked. Yeah. That it's yeah. it's really tough to extract it. All right. We spent a half an hour talking about this. We need to get on with the show. Um, so if you are listening to us, you're going to love reading from us. We're delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market, and it's completely free. No one else is covering the markets we covered with Charging and Fearless, where we deliver to you a new weekly stock pitch that could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo, Paris, or somewhere in between. So that is a completely free stock pitch to your inbox every week. You'll have it read in 30 seconds flat, and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you, which is where you get an edge. Sign up now in the show notes for this episode. Okay, big deal or no big deal? We've gone really to gender stereotypes here. <laughs> Emmett, you're talking yeah. pickup trucks and massive balls. Anne-Marie, you're talking Taylor Swift and Barbie. Yeah. 
So, okay, <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> Just hit me with the question. <laughs> or do my best. We're not talking about my Lululemon pants again, are we? We're not. <laughs> no. But you might have revealed something there yourself. Um, so <laughs> the first headline for you, Emmett, is that Ford stock is falling because it's cutting the price of its electric F-150 Lightning pickup, pickup trucks by as much as 10 grand. So big deal or no big deal? It's a big deal if you bought one yesterday. And you open the paper today and you realize you're down 10 grand. What's that expression about when a car rolls off the, the courtyard of a sales office that immediately it drops like something like, well, in Ireland, I think they say 5,000 or 4,000 euro. And I presume that's a kind of global truth. Well, it's certainly a big deal if you were a customer. But when you look about uh, into the detail of this, this, this is a 17% price cut of the vehicle. That's That's a big discount and and as we know tesla has been really aggressive in its effort to grow sales and and it has come at the price of near-term profitability so so tesla led the way they've now started production of the cyber truck which clearly ford and the f-150 folks decided we better get ahead of this curve and all along ford was always reluctant <clears throat> excuse me ford was always reluctant uh, and expressed reticence about doing price cuts on EVs because it hurts the resale value and, and it also kind of damages the brand image. Uh, but Tesla has more wiggle room to lower prices because its operating margins are higher than uh, those of its rivals, especially Ford and especially in EV. So is it a big deal or is it a deal or no big deal? Uh, deal or no big deal? <laughs> Getting tongue twisted. Well, it is a sign that, you know, we know that a race to the bottom in a price war is a sign of commoditization, if you will. And and it's also a game where only the most capital efficient or those with the biggest pile of money will win. So I'm actually going to say this is a big deal because apart from the fact that you will have created a sense of, I don't want to use the word betrayal, but hard done by for everyone who bought this truck yesterday, you are now suddenly going head to head on a price war with a competitor who can go deeper than you and i don't think that's a wise move but look hey look i give it a, a 10 minute look over and i'm sure the ford accountants and, and financial people have given a very good view on this and they want to grab market while market is hot but i, I think it's quite a big deal hmm. i'm actually seeing some parallels there in the streaming industry where netflix and tesla were the original first movers and then all these competitors came in when it became quite profitable, but they are not doing it profitably well. The originals are, and it's actually advantage we've seen with Netflix and Tesla is almost increasing, even though more competitors come into the space. So it'll be interesting to see how it develops. Um, okay, Anne-Marie, for you, cinemas across the world are selling out to see Barbie. Big deal yeah. or no big deal. I feel like the, the cinema industry needed yeah. something like this. They did, yes. And personally, just for me, huge deal. Massive <laughs> deal. Very excited. I have my Barbie tickets purchased. I'm going to on Saturday, and then I'm seeing Oppenheimer on Tuesday. Very excited. Nice. Big day for annoying people. Um, <laughs> where do we see? This is actually quite exciting, to be honest, because I think when the pandemic hit, everyone was like, I don't know, are we ever going to get back to even like a 90s cinema culture of 
there was a consistent number of movies heading into cinemas that every weekend you'd be like yeah do you know what i'll go to the movies i want to see this you know because we re- the studios did establish that system of they were like if there wasn't a 200 million dollar budget and there weren't special effects going in i'm not going to see it and then we also got caught up a bit in the in the it needs to come from an established franchise type thing no one wants to take any risks i want to go see the 17th marvel movie and I know it will be passable and that will be fine. So it's very exciting to have two large budget movies that have both been led by significant directors that have kind of been given their artistic freedom here. And yes, Barbie is an IP movie, but it's not a franchise film. So we're getting some credit here. Um, we are not yet in the weekend, but as of right now, the two films together are expected to, to uh, generate about $200 million um, just in their opening weekend. Um, not to mention that we just got a Mission Impossible film that's still in theaters, still generating ticket sales. Uh, we have Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse that came out last month because it's continuing to bring in money. Um and, you know, we have Indiana Jones that I think kind of went out with a whimper rather than a triumphant shout. Mm. But anyway, mm. um, so it is crazy to think we, we have five decent big movies. And so I think that that is quite nice for cinema chains. Please, no one buy AMC stock. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, AMC stock uh, bear tokens or whatever they are. yeah don't do that don't buy cinema chains it's still very risky and as we just talked about for the last half an hour there is an impending strike which means yeah. <laughs> this will be fine for the next six weeks and then we will probably go back to everything being very bad but this is, um this is as good as it gets for a while yeah but i i think it's very exciting i think it's very exciting culturally in terms of investing not much to say here because like the what I have learned from like reading about films and cinema for the last two, three years in terms of investing, that industry is so like divided up and there's still kind of many old world players that like it's very difficult for like if several movies do very well, it means that like 12 companies are going to make a meager amount of money and like nothing all that impressive happens. But interesting fact, um, some 40,000 AMC theater loyalty program members have already purchased tickets to see Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day at the weekend. So that's kind of oh. fun. People, people are doing wow. the double feature. Pretty sedentary day, though, isn't it? Like, you know, you wouldn't want to be doing that too often. And what are you going to do? I'm going to sit down for six hours today. Might eat a few buckets of popcorn. Don't know. I think think the order matters as well. If you're watching a three-hour movie about atomic bombs and then you go into (laughs) Barbie after, I don't know if that's the way to do it. Suspension of disbelief, you know. You know, this thing where when the first 10 minutes kind of sets your scale of 1 to 10 and suspension of disbelief. You go in, you watch Barbie and you set it to like two and then you go into Oppenheimer and you've carried your two from one theater to the other. It's, <laughs> it's going to be a, quite the shock. Okay, Emmett, I've got an interesting stock for you here. So mm-hmm. Sphere Entertainment, it's a spinoff from uh, Madison Square Garden. It's that mm-hmm. big, huge sphere we've seen that's taken over the Las Vegas skyline over everyone's social media and everything. So this stock has nearly doubled so far in 2023. Yeah. Big deal or no big deal? I think it's a big deal. I find you actually obviously said to me yesterday, hey, will you have a look at the sphere? And I was really taken aback at what I saw, um, not just structurally, but but the business itself. So it is the world's largest spherical structure and it can seat 17,600 people. And the venue is designed to provide this unique immersive concert experience for fans and as you said it's it's been spun off and its ticker is SPHR it's about $36 a share its market cap is about one and a quarter billion dollars now this recently giant ball that's now sitting in Las Vegas um what is located at the Venetian Resort and um there's plans to build more of them around the world which i found very interesting and the exterior of the sphere for those who haven't seen it 
is fitted with 1.2 million small LED screens capable of creating really impressive animation effects. And it's basically a 250 foot tall LED screen um, inside the venue as well. Um, and it's just going to really wrap around the audience. And, and you know, we often hear about reinventing the um, entertainment experience and IMAX was a stock I looked into in great depth um, at the time and it just does bigger screens and higher quality as I'm sure everyone who's listening knows but this is truly different and as um, and I, I, I'm just I think it's a, a very very interesting structure that when it eventually starts to replicate around the world will be um, uh, a huge success. I, 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 I'd be sure of it. Um, you too, the Irish band who I mentioned earlier when I was giving you my little diatribe that you didn't laugh about with uh, Reed in the boardroom. Um, they, a little Irish band. They're going to be playing 25 gigs at the Sphere in Vegas um, from September, I think, through to December. It's kind of a residency. It's kind of their uh, Celine Dion, but it's smaller. Um, yeah, at 25 gigs, uh, and it, they're basically going to be doing their 1991 album, Baby, which is kind of the, the, uh, the first, uh, I suppose, it's the, the premiere uh, of the Sphere. I think it's very interesting, and I'm going to look deeper into the stock and into the business, because I, I can just see when they roll it out, roll a few of them out, no pun intended, across the world, this is something that will draw crowds. So for a band that you pre... Like, let me give you an example. Years ago, my wife and friends and I went to see Sting in... Or maybe the police, actually. It was the police in, in Ireland's largest... Um, um, venue which is Croke Park it's the National Sports Stadium and it's ginormous you can see something like 82,000 people and we were at the very 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 back of the top row furthest physical point from Sting himself in the whole place and the delay between sound and visuals was several seconds so we could see the, the wave of claps move back towards us like a speed like a sped up Mexican wave and the experience was just awful like it was terrible now i had a great day because frankly i don't mind sitting at the back and i've hit that age but you know when you've dropped whatever it is how much is how much are the taylor swift tickets Anne marie the they're starting at 59 euro and they go up to like 300 and something yeah so if you're going to drop a couple of hundred euro on a night out with friends you want to have an amazing experience. I'm pretty sure the Sphere is going to do that. And I saw this short video of Bono, the singer from U2, just walking around the, the Sphere, um, discussing its attributes. And he was saying, this is the first venue that's really built for the listener. Whereas all hitherto and up until this point, sports stadia, which are built for the spectator, were used and repurposed for for musical um, acts. And, and as a matter of fact, we've got something now that's way better. Hmm. I like the way Bono is who you go to when we think of revolutionizing entertainment. Speaking of <laughs> annoying people. <laughs> yeah. there's, something, there's, so, there's something kind of coalescing there with Bono opening up the place that looks like a massive testicle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can't escape it, can we, on this podcast? It used to be Tesla was the only thing we talked about. Now it's just like Fnake Fnart. <laughs> um, okay, Amory. The last one we have for you here is the Taylor Swift tour is set to gross over $1 billion yeah. in sales, making it the highest grossing tour of all time. Big deal mm -hmm. or no big deal? Um, actually, like quite an impressive deal, I would say. I'm mm. I'm excited. I have two facts here 
that I have to I kept on my phone. I didn't put them on my computer, so I'm looking down. But anyway, um, they did surveying, and they said that the 52 show domestic run, which is just the shows in the United States, which is about to wrap up, is projected to generate 4.6 billion in new consumer spending. That has led some economists to conclude that Taylor Swift may have actually prevented recession in the United States. <laughs> Imagine being so powerful that you could prevent a recession by forcing people to spend. It's like $1,600 is the average consumer spend for this concert. And that's like hotels, flights, tickets. Yeah, that's its whole own big problem. Thing, food. Yeah, which like that's that's awful to spend $1,600. But, but yeah, she got every single person coming in the door she took $1,600 off them and she has prevented recession great day um and and another fun fact just so people can contextualize this um was that Taylor Swift's opening night of the Eras tour which took place in Glendale Arizona which is where the Super Bowl was played generated more profit for local businesses than the 2023 Super Bowl stop yeah that's nuts yeah, so very, very impressive. Um, this this story actually does have a stock that we can talk about. Would anyone like to guess it was in Charging and Fearless a couple months ago? Uh, Universal Music Group. Correct, yeah. So Universal Music Group trades in Amsterdam, and it's a pretty good stock. Like They own the rights to an awful lot of artists, but Taylor Swift is, is one of their biggest artists, if not their biggest artist, and they own both. They are her record company, meaning that they make money every time people stream songs, but they are also her publisher, meaning that they also support her copyright um, for her songwriting. So it means that they get paid twice every time people listen to their music. They use it in TV shows, use it in ads or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm sure they're having a pretty great year. You'd love to be in that boardroom. Not so bad. Taylor Swift yeah. might get a job for the Federal Reserve as well if she keeps yeah. <laughs> preventing recessions. Okay, yeah. um, we're going to finish out with an elevator pitch. Well, not really an elevator pitch, kind of more of a check-in. Emmett, you've been looking at Alberts. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, I read a great piece last week that I linked in a tweet, and it was about the shoe manufacturer Alberts, which I've been watching since IPO. Uh, basically because I'm an active customer and I'm a fan of their footwear and heaven knows how much money has been spent in my household on their shoes because we everyone in my home has worn several pairs of them but um, so far it's a perfect case study on why just because you like something it does not necessarily make it a good investment which I think is an approach that's a gross oversimplification of just one point that Peter Lynch made in his book, One Up on Wall Street, where he says that the average person has an edge over Wall Street pros by living the life they have and watching the trends from their own corner of the world. And and that's, I, I guess, why I was particularly so interested in Allbirds, because I was a customer before they IPO'd, watched the IPO, saw it shot up to, uh, I, I don't know, $25 and change. Actually, it was about $28, and now it's about a buck twenty a share. So really, this has been quite the fall from, from a high. Um, we've seen a lot of falls from high over the last uh, two years, but this is particularly quite the fall when you have a $28 stock and you're down at book and change. So the article I mentioned and that I, I linked in a tweet was called or is called How Allbirds Lost Its Way. And it's how Allbirds, um, who are basically an eco-friendly footwear brand, particularly known for these wool sneakers or runners if you're in Ireland or trainers if you're in the UK, um, how they've faced a series of missteps and challenges that have led to a decline in revenue and worse, a loss of cultural status because whatever about revenue, you know, you can you can fix that, but it is very difficult if you had a kind of cultural status and it's now suddenly gone into decline. Now, way back when, 
the company gained popularity by offering sustainable products and tapping into a growing demand for environmentally conscious goods. However, it struggled to expand beyond its core product and attract younger customers with new offerings like, you know, performance running shoes and cool apparel. So issues with product quality started to emerge, like they, they had a particular um, leggings that were uh, see-through. I think it was only one shade, but they were see-through. And then there, there's... And actually, by the way, this also happened Lululemon. I think it's just a feature of a skin-type product that's a certain color, but let's not go there. That, that was a problem that Allbirds had and shouldn't have had. And then they also had um, these sneakers that I've bought and, and, and own, and they developed holes, which further damaged its reputation. Now, look, my big toe is of relatively normal shape and size and put it this way <laughs> no my both my big toes look i i, I it's i'm a really symmetrical person oh, it's it, such a good way to start toe, a sentence no. <laughs> look medically speaking and i haven't had a doctor review this statement my big toes fall inside the acceptable parameters of size and length and sticky uppedness but both of my big toes managed to punch a hole through two pairs of Allbirds. Wow. Um, but yet, yes, I know. Thank you, Anne-Marie. But yet I still remain loyal. Like I'm still a loyal uh, customer. Anyway, look, their stock value, as I said, <laughs> has plummeted, has plummeted since my big toes started to punch a hole in their shoes. And, and, and they've undergone layoffs and they've discontinued certain product lines. Now, the co-founders joey zillinger and tim brown have come out and they've acknowledged their mistakes and they're refocusing on the core product and customer base now despite their commitment to sustainability appears that the environmental concerns alone are just not enough to drive sales because alas customers prioritize factors like comfort and price when making purchase decisions so you can go save the world that's great but at the end of the day i'm going to look inside my wallet and I'm going to test the product. And I've often looked at Ben and Jerry's um, ice cream. And I said this to, to someone recently. And it's like, they have that um, logo on the side, um, fair trade. And I think fair trade is just a plus. When you when you want ice cream, you want the one that tastes the best. You want cookies and cream or whatever it is. And the fair trade just makes you feel good about the person. And I think that that's the effect that you get when you buy an eco-friendly product such as Allbirds shoes so anyway look problem number one you could say is product durability problem number two with all birds um is the importance of being eco like this guy zillinger who who's the co-ceo said he knows from his own experience that people don't want to pay for more sustainable products which is like my ben and jerry's uh point you don't buy it because it's ecological you like it because it is and and when he was working in a biotech company um, his team tried to market these new eco-friendly materials, but the companies that they pitched to said, look, this sounds great, he said. And then he also said, uh, then they were like, you know what, we just want plastic, it's cheaper. So the second problem is really how high is ecological in the purchasing decision tree? And that's a real pity. It's a, absolutely, it's terrible. It's a really, it's a real, real pity, but it's clearly a reality. The third problem, um, and these problems, in no particular order i'm just shooting them out um is that they expanded too fast and found that they had a pile of products that were somewhat contradictory like supposedly these high performance sneakers sneakers and in the same product line these ballet flats and 
um, they were neither technically extraordinary nor um, complimentary. So the cool kids um, just didn't really feel it was a brand that they could connect with. And then the fourth problem that I can see um, is that up until recently, there were co-CEOs um, who appeared to never disagree. But if you dive in specifically to that Wall Street Journal article, they said different things to each other when they were apart from each other. So um, they would talk about it. One of the CEOs was all about targeting younger shoppers um, who internally they've named Charlie. So they've called the young buyer Charlie, the, the what do you call it again, the avatar? No, not the avatar, what do you call it? A persona. So they've given the young shopper a persona and they have edgier designs and they've, they've very technical gear uh, particularly running shoes and then staff would go okay that's fine so our target is charlie 20 something year old and then they'd go into another meeting with the other ceo who'd say that the prime customer is someone like me uh, someone in their mid to late 40s who buys the shoes because they look pretty good they're very comfortable um so apparently that's a problem that they have hopefully resolved if if i was to call out the four problems they don't have a co-ceo ship arrangement anymore which works for some companies as it did for salesforce and netflix but then you have other companies such as allbirds where you really need a co-ceo ship that's highly complementary and never contradictory it's really really important so the net upshot net upshot is that allbirds is now working to regain its footing and find a balance between sustainability and meeting customer needs. And I would love to see these guys pull it off and get back to growth. But the challenge, again, as highlighted by former customer in the article, is that when someone decides that they're done with a product, they are done. And that's horrible because what's like, so I go back and I buy Allbirds in, in large part because I don't need to think too hard about it. I'm like, eh, I need new shoes, I go to Allbirds. My habit is formed. I know they have the size and the shape. I don't have to worry about when I order whatever size I am, that when they arrive, they'll fit perfectly. I know how they look. But when somebody has, when somebody's done with punching holes through and they're like, I'm not doing this again, um, they're gone. They're gone. Like we can't overestimate the power of habit. I'm, as I said, I'm still loyal. As I said, I've sm spent a small family fortune all birds for myself and and, uh, and my family team. But um, from my balcony of ignorance here where I sit and as a watcher of the business, this is a, an MBA case study on strategic drift or, or a diversification to bring it back to Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street book. Okay, so what what are your thoughts on the turnaround? Well, it's really barreled ahead in the last couple of days. It's quite remarkable. They've they've had two, I think, twenty percent jumps in the last couple of days off what I I can't I, I didn't dive into the why. Um, there might be some micro news there, but it's easy to have twenty percent jumps when your share price is a book and twenty. It's easier, put it that way. Um, I think they're gonna, I think they're going to execute a turnaround. The problem. I would see, I guess, is apparel is fickle, footwear is fickle, but footwear is somewhat less fickle than other areas of apparel. Like, you know, tw 20 years ago, I was a shareholder in, I say 20 years ago, might have been 18 years ago, I was a shareholder in Decker's Outdoor, famous for yeah. the Ugg boots. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Ugg boots were the hottest trend in the world. There was barely, it was mostly um, in this part of the world, mostly worn by women. And there was no woman without, every woman 
on the street had a pair of Uggs um, and it was the hottest trend. Then it went into decline and I think it's on recovery again. You could say yeah. the same for Crocs, you know, um, again, Crocs have gone through a, I suppose, product perception that ranged from ridicule to being the hottest thing you could wear. You know, uh, I remember once seeing a wedding photo and the, the groom was wearing Crocs. I went, oh, please. That's terrible. That marriage is not going to last. But anyway, um, so yeah, I think I think um, I think all birds will figure it because, look, the four problems I call out are fixable. You know, they're not in biotech. They haven't killed anyone. They've added too many product lines which they can retire. They fixed the CEO problem. Technically, they can fix the hole in the shoe thing. You'll be first. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know how that goes. And so the product durability thing is fixable. These are all fixable problems. And I can tell you one thing, if I can identify those four problems from sitting here in Ireland, they in this HQ are absolutely acutely aware of it and have built something great and it's a nice product and environmentally um, conscious businesses need to be celebrated and supported and they, um, they deserve to rise because we've only got one planet. The end. I cannot believe that you have punched a hole in two pairs of their shoes and you're still yeah. willing to go back. That I can't is believe shocking. I can't believe you were in two shoes at once. Did <laughs> <laughs> um after this Anne Marie you and I are going to a meeting together I'm going to bring them I'm going to show you. <laughs> <laughs> All right on that harrowing image we're going to close out the show. <laughs> oh god. But before we do, I just want to get in a quick word from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. Uh, Vodafone Business has always been a reliable provider for mobile and broadband needs, but now they are so much more. Did you know they now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders? They're no longer a telecoms provider. They're a comprehensive technology partner. They're really stepping up to help Irish businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting-edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember, Vodafone Business is there to support, guide, and empower you every step of the way. That's it for today, folks. Emmett and Marie, thank you very much for joining me, and thanks, everyone, for listening in. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, send us on to your friends, put us into the WhatsApp group on a Friday, whatever you want to do. Thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>